I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Hyenas? Now, hyenas are not welcome on the range. It's high noon for Friday, November 19th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 303rd day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the cackling, fame-chasing, insolent idiot Kamala Harris, whose political career began thanks to a sexual relationship with Willie Brown and blossomed through corruption and fraud, whose only accomplishment as California Attorney General was serving her communist masters to the detriment of California's people and who has done nothing in her position as fake vice president except perpetuate our state of permanent embarrassment. So congratulations, commies. You're now forced to pretend that your bench players who no one voted for are just as capable as your first string who no one voted for. And this will continue until you finally decide you've had enough. Because you see, the thing is, The media can't save you and social media can't save you and your willingness to constantly misrepresent the truth in person to person conversations can't save you either. It is all being exposed and there is only one direction this is headed. And if you know this to be true and you are avoiding it and denying it and trying to pretend that you can crawl back into the shadows and no one will have ever noticed. Let me just say, that's not going to work. So what you need to do is just banish all those stupid and evil communist ideas from your brain and migrate back to America, where we will receive you with open arms so long as you have made amends with all of those people you have shamed and bullied and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. So it really is time to set out on that adventure because the thing is, it's only going to get worse. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Friday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies! Welcome to the show. Now, I know what you're thinking, commies. Man, it is so great to have a minority woman president for at least a few hours. It is unfortunate that she was not legitimately elected, of course, but that's kind of what happens when you rise to power through nepotism and sex acts and corruption and compromise and election fraud. It just is what it is. So I want to spend a little time at the beginning here just to remind everybody of who Kamala Harris actually is. And it should be noted before anything else that Kamala Harris was so unpopular in the Democrat primary that she dropped out before primary voting even started. She underperformed Tulsi Gabbard. She underperformed Pete Buttigieg. And Amy Klobuchar and devout communist Elizabeth Warren and devout communist Bernie Sanders. And of course, the half dead, demented, degenerate ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden. That is the person that people will be arguing today is a breath of fresh air. And I'm genuinely looking forward to the conversations in the Democrat Communist Party as they argue about whether or not Kamala Harris will be better than Joe Biden. 
And I know that she is not somehow permanent president now. Okay. Of course, I know that. That's not what I'm saying. It is interesting that uh, CNN's Caitlin Collins is reporting the White House has said she will be working from her office in the West Wing. They don't want us to see pictures of Kamala Harris sitting behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. That's for damn sure, because there is a reported sizable rift between the fake president's team and the fake vice president's team that has been ongoing, and they are backstabbing, trying to maintain or take power. The White House is going so far as to figure out if there's a way that they can take her out as vice president and replace her with, reportedly, Pete Buttigieg. And things are going so poorly for Kamala Harris that her comms person just up and quit yesterday. For the last 10 months that the fake administration has been in office, Kamala Harris has been tasked with handling a bunch of impossible issues that she is absolutely unequipped to handle, like immigration, for instance. She was going to be the immigration czar, and she has done absolutely nothing to fix the modern-day slave trade that is happening on the southern border. She did travel to Central America, not to the border, so that she could pretend to address root causes, and by that, They mean that she went down there to talk about how climate change is forcing people to migrate through our open southern border, no matter who they are, no matter how much money they pay to the Mexican cartels for trafficking and no matter what crimes they have committed in the past. Yes, that's correct. The fake administration is allowing millions of immigrants to come in unvetted, many of them violent criminals. But let's get into some of Kamala Harris's past because it is important to know that these things are, in fact, not conspiracy theories. And let's start with her relationship with Willie Brown. This is from the Washington Free Beacon, January 26, 2019, Brent Sher. Willie Brown admits he boosted Kamala Harris's career. That's the headline. Former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown broke his silence on his relationship with Democratic Senator Kamala Harris on Saturday, admitting in his weekly column that he used his powerful post to boost her young career when they dated. Brown, who was openly in an extramarital relationship with Harris when he was Speaker of the California State Assembly and running for mayor, had avoided commenting on his relationship with Harris since she announced her run for president a week ago. Harris has also managed to avoid addressing the role Brown played in the early stages of her political career. In his weekly San Francisco Chronicle column, however, Brown referred to it as the, quote, elephant in the room and acknowledged that he used his position to help her career. I've been peppered with calls from the national media about my relationship with Kamala Harris, most of which I have not returned, Brown wrote. Yes, we dated. Brown goes on to address the fact that he appointed Harris, who was just a few years out of law school and working at the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, to two well-paid posts on the California State Commissions and later helped her in her first election. Yes, I may have influenced her career by appointing her to two state commissions when I was assembly speaker, he writes, and I certainly helped with her first race for district attorney in San Francisco. The two reportedly broke up in December 1995, just before he became mayor, but he remained a political ally. Brown is credited for connecting Harris with the donors who boosted her successful 2004 campaign for San Francisco district attorney, during which she outraised her incumbent opponent. The Los Angeles Times reported this week that Brown's stamp of approval was crucial in raising money from the San Francisco establishment. Brown attempts to belittle his help for Harris, noting that he also, quote, helped the careers of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Governor Gavin Newsom, and Senator Dianne Feinstein. He was never involved romantically with any of these three. (laughs) The two positions Brown appointed Harris to on the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board and the California Medical Assistance Commission paid handsomely. 
San Francisco Weekly reported back in 2003 that the two positions earned her more than $400,000 over five years. Harris defended her decision to take the post Brown got for her in her 2003 interview with San Francisco Weekly, despite her lack of experience. Whether you agree or disagree with the system, I did the work, she said. I brought a level of life knowledge and common sense to the jobs. (laughs) God, she's amazing. (laughs) Whether you agree or disagree with the system, the system is the system having sex with powerful men who are 31 years older than you to get jobs? Is that the system? And I mean, certainly It is in certain industries, like, for instance, Hollywood and I guess politics. But man, that's not the constitutional system. That's not the political system functioning properly. That is a prostitution system. Brown also reportedly gifted Harris with a BMW in 1994. He is 31 years older than Harris. Brown remains a supporter of Harris, but wrote in his column that he is concerned the buzz around her campaign launch may not translate into actual support from voters. Well, there's a shock. Isn't that incredible? We were told that Kamala Harris was one of the most popular politicians in California, right? Isn't she the very amazing, very inspiring senator from California? How has she been getting all these jobs without Support from voters. Gosh, it's a mystery. California Senator Kamala Harris is riding a buzz wave, the likes of which we haven't seen in years, he wrote. The question is whether she can turn the buzz into a solid political operation. And the answer is nope. He said her first big test will be whether she can fill the streets during her campaign launch event on Sunday in Oakland's Frank Ogawa Plaza, like former President Barack Obama did during his first campaign in 2007. That feat took months of old-fashioned organizing by Obama's operation, he wrote. It will be interesting to see if Harris can match it using social media. Oh, it was all organizing that did it. Obama was a community organizer, right? Which is essentially the same as being a Black Lives Matter leader. And I'm not trying to compare them directly. I'm saying that the function of each of those positions is actually very similar. What they do is take global communist money and then incentivize people to go out and support their causes with money and with propaganda. But apparently she didn't have quite that level of support. Now, let's talk a little bit about what Kamala Harris did in her career as attorney general. I remember during the primary season, while she was trying to become the nominee for the Democrat Communist Party, during the debates, Kamala Harris's one claim to competence was that she had run the California attorney general's office. She said she ran the office for the country's largest state, as if the reported population of California somehow makes her good at her job. And of course, that is utterly absurd. This article is from August 12th, 2020 in the Daily Caller. Kamala Harris had nearly 2,000 people locked up on marijuana charges. This is by Jake Dima. Senator Kamala Harris, presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden's running mate, purportedly prosecuted nearly 2,000 people on marijuana-related charges during her time as California Attorney General. A total of 1,974 people were sent to state prisons for marijuana-related offenses during Harris's 2011 to 2016 tenure as the Golden State's lead prosecutor, the Washington Free Beacon reported. Harris is now on board with Biden's criminal justice plan that seeks to end all incarceration for drug use alone. A unity task force meant to unify Biden's camp and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' wing of the Democratic Party recommended decriminalizing marijuana at the federal level and legalizing it for medical use. Harris, when she was seeking the Democratic nomination, released a criminal justice plan which detailed her plan to end the war on drugs and legalize marijuana. 
Harris's campaign also included statistics in the plan that black people are four times more likely than white people to be arrested for possession of cannabis. Democratic Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard confronted Harris about the number of marijuana arrests recorded during her time as lead prosecutor in one of the Democratic debates last year. And rather than reading the quote in the article for you, I'm going to play the clip and then return to the article. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It Thank is you. why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to not your, only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to, I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response? The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. And before going back to the article, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that Tulsi Gabbard got a huge round of applause for saying this about Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris got one person in the audience to clap as she responded. That is the true amount of support for Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris makes Hillary Clinton look authentic. And I've been saying that for a very long time. Also note that her answer was nothing. All right. All those things she said those are just slogan after slogan after slogan after slogan. There was no substance there whatsoever. She did the work, but she didn't cite any work she did. She just assumes that you understand that because the Democrat Communist Party stands for criminal justice reform, something that Donald Trump accomplished, then she, of course, was the one accomplishing it, but not really. And just remember, she said that California is a model for the nation. And of course it is. California is the communist testing ground of the United States. And currently the place most like communist China in this country. Back to the article in the Daily Caller. Executive Director for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Eric Altieri, said Harris's stance on marijuana is, quote, problematic, and her views on the drug would not, quote, qualify as progressive, he told the magazine in August 2019. Harris's AG record has other potential vulnerabilities as well. She reportedly defended prosecutor Robert Murray, who admitted to falsifying a man's confession, according to The Observer. The indictment was dismissed due to the falsification, but Harris's administration appealed the decision to throw out the case, claiming physical brutality is the only justification for dismissing charges in this manner, the Observer reported. 
Harris, during her time as prosecutor, did mandate officers wear body cameras as a means for holding them accountable, but only those who worked with her were required. It did not apply to all local cops, according to a 2019 fact check by the Sacramento Bee. Biden's website mentions his desire to end mass incarceration, and Harris's 2019 justice plan also advocated for the move. However, Harris resisted a judge's decision in California, which ordered the state to implement a new parole program that would free certain prisoners early due to rampant unconstitutional overcrowding, according to the Los Angeles Times. Harris's lawyers insisted that the order would cause a void in the prison labor pool that paid incarcerated people between eight and 37 cents an hour. The Times reported. Isn't that incredible? But wait, 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 it gets so much worse. This clip is from The Intercept. My career has been based on an understanding, one, that as a prosecutor, my duty was to seek and make sure that the most vulnerable and voiceless among us are protected. And that is why I have personally prosecuted. Should I put this in my pocket? Yeah. It's not outside. I have personally prosecuted violent crime that includes rape, child molestation, and homicide. And I have also worked my entire career to reform the criminal justice. I was uh, born and raised Catholic. All my relatives were Catholic. I believed in God. That was my life. I was accepted to Salesian High School, which to me was an honor. Almost immediately after I got to the high school, I was befriended by the uh, vice principal, uh, Father Steve Whelan. The very first incident, I was playing pool, and he masturbated in front of me. And I was scared to death. I stood there frozen. I was just a little 70-pound runt. I looked across the room, and I thought, geez, I need some help. And Brother Sal Belanti was watching and enjoying it. And later I found out he was a serial molester rapist himself. When he got out of the PE to go into the showers, he would watch me. He would make comments about me undressing. And then he started calling me into his office and telling me uh, I was bad in class and what am I going to do for him. And then he would attack me. He would stick his hands down my pants. He would, uh, he would just molest me. And then he would tell me if uh, anything happened, nobody would believe my word against the priest. And I believed him. This escalated. He started getting more violent and more rough. And um, the very last time he attacked me, he dragged me into the room. I actually blacked out and floated away while he was molesting and raping me. I just gave up on Catholicism. I gave up on God. I lost all sense of spirituality. with another victim to Terrence Hallinan's office, the DA's office in San Francisco. And uh, we were introduced to Hallinan and another a DA's assistant who told us they virtually had all these boxes and bo- like a room full of files uh, that they had gathered and collected and subpoenaed uh, from the Diocese of San Francisco and all these priests. Bishop Levada at that time was the highest ranking bishop in the United States. Then he became cardinal. So this was the top guy. This was the kingpin in the United States. And we had a champion here that was going to go after him. We thought, well, this is going to go somewhere. These guys are going to be punished. They're going to be held accountable. Uh, They're going to be prosecuted. 38-year-old Kamala Harris came out of nowhere and was swept into office as San Francisco's district attorney. Uh, In 2004, uh, Kamala Harris was elected. Everything just went down the tubes. I started out by writing a letter asking for some help or some uh, accessibility to the file. I didn't get any response. So then we made posters and started putting them all over the city. And we got no response. Several media members were also asking for files and stuff, and they were getting nothing. So in 2010, uh, there was a big article in San Francisco Weekly 
and uh, they were pestering her office. And then what they got was this uh, false statement that they were protecting victims. It's just a flat out insult. She could have redacted the names, uh, blacked out the names and left them out. Everything he did to gather information and to try and prosecute and go after them disappeared and went the other way. She shielded and protected them and we were just, we were floored at what happened. We also want to make sure that when a woman is raped, a child is molested, one human being is killed by another human being, we also want to make sure there's going to be consequence and serious consequence for those crimes. Her um, participation in going after clergy or, or predators of the Catholic Church or bishops who had enabled these people was less than zero. I would like her to produce one clergy abuser or one bishop that she's even tried to prosecute. I'd like to hear it. Kamala, Kamala, Kamala. Recall yesterday when I was discussing the Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's influence over media organizations, The Intercept was listed among those media outlets influenced and funded by billionaires. That is not a right-wing hit piece. That is a left-wing exposure piece. And this is Kamala Harris's legacy. It is representative of who she is. She does what she is told to defend the wealthy and the powerful and to serve her global communist masters. That's not a conspiracy theory. Incompetent and narcissistic people like Kamala Harris rise to prominence through corruption, compromise, and favor trading, sometimes sexual. So Joe Biden is reportedly no longer under anesthesia, and now he is on his way to returning as fake president. But it's good to keep who Kamala Harris really is in mind as the internal power struggle in the White House continues between the fake vice president and the fake president. So after a night of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy giving an extended filibuster-esque speech to delay the vote on the Democrats' Build Back Communist plan, the House has finally passed the bill, and there has been, finally, some discussion on what this bill actually is. The headline in the Wall Street Journal today reads, the real Biden bill, at least $4.6 trillion. And the Republicans on the House Budget Committee released that number a few weeks ago, October 28th, 2021. $4.6 trillion is real cost of Democrats' framework, ultimately adds $3 trillion in new debt. In a hurried attempt to deliver on the multitude of promises made by Democrats over the last nine months, President Biden earlier today unveiled a so-called framework for a socialist tax and spending spree. A preliminary analysis by House Budget Committee Republicans has found that the Democrats' proposed agenda will cost at least $4.6 trillion and could increase the nation's debt by at least $3 trillion. President Biden delivered another white paper full of Democrat wish list items propped up by a disingenuous price tag and budget gimmicks. The facts are clear. Washington Democrats' tax and spending agenda will ultimately be far more expensive than they are willing to admit. Upwards of $4.6 trillion in spending that would add an alarming $3 trillion in new debt at a time when government-fueled inflation has reached a near 40-year high. As the American people are lurching from one crisis to another under the Biden administration's failed leadership, Washington Democrats are refusing to be honest about their own radical agenda that will not only fuel inflation, but result in fewer jobs, higher taxes on families and businesses, and put America further along an unstable fiscal trajectory. The Democrats claim that their framework costs a meager $1.75 trillion, relies strongly on early sunsets of costly programs to make the price tag appear smaller on paper. Publicly, however, Democrats have repeatedly called for the permanent expansion of these programs, such as the child tax credit, universal pre-K, and extending Affordable Care Act subsidies. 
When you remove the budget gimmicks from the equation and extend these provisions, as Democrats have repeatedly called for, it will add an additional $2.1 trillion in spending, said House Budget Committee Republican leader Jason Smith. The key offset in the Democrats' framework includes an extremely generous estimate that the IRS will collect an additional $400 billion as it targets more Americans, double the $200 billion estimate given by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office and the bipartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. Some Democrats have also stated they will not vote for a reconciliation bill unless it includes provisions for illegal immigrants and a giveaway to the wealthy in high-tax states by repealing the state and local tax deduction cap. These provisions would add approximately $480 billion. Taking into account the budget gimmicks, failed offsets, and new provisions Democrats want to include, their framework spends $4.6 trillion with only $1.6 trillion in offsets for a total deficit increase of $3 trillion. And of course, all of that is true, which is why they don't ever try to refute it. They simply say what their slogans are and then say things like, you're a bad person if you don't want these illegal immigrants taken care of. What are you, racist? You're a bad person if you don't support whatever environmental justice is. And Kamala Harris, of course, knows all about that. A couple of weeks ago, she was very concerned about the racial divide between groups of people that have more trees around and groups of people that have fewer trees around. Apparently, the number of trees nearby is racism. You got it? So all of those rural Americans who drive the very environmentally toxic gas-guzzling cars are surrounded by all the trees, but the very efficient overpopulated cities where the Democrat Communist Party gets to run all its experiments, they don't have enough trees. And that's racist. But ultimately, what all of this is, the Build Back Better agenda, is the implementation of the global communist framework as described by Klaus Schwab. We are not the only country that has a Build Back Better agenda. Now, you might be asking yourself, why in the world would an American fake president be trying to sell the American people the exact same program that other leaders around the world are also trying to sell to their people. And I would say, huh, yeah, that is another mystery. What could it be? Could it be that there is some agreement between global communists around the world that they would all pursue the aim of global communism together? Could it be that they are all working in concert? Is that possible? No, that's a conspiracy. The Great Reset isn't real. And all of these different leaders have just tried to figure out what works best in their own countries. And they just happened to call it the same thing. Very pertinent question to ask, how do we build back better? To build back better or whatever. We have a chance to reset the clock and build back better than before. To build back better than before. Remember the the terrible damage of COVID as we try to build back from this uh, global pandemic. Joe Biden calls it build back better. Build back better. Building back better. To do things differently. To build back better. We're going to build it back better. And build it back better. In my plan to build back better, uh, start taking all the problems that have been created in right. education and mental health and start to, to build back in a positive way. I have launched a booklet called Build Back Better, written after coronavirus. It's about building this country back better. Growing conspiracy following it. It is called The Great Reset. An unprecedented opportunity to rethink 
and reset the ways in which we live. The great opportunity for reset. The theory even calls Mr. Biden's campaign slogan, Build Back Better, a front for the conspiracy. Build Back Better. Building Back Better, our economy. Build Back Better. All elements of the Great Reset are fundamental to building the future we need. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. It's a big effort to, some would say, to build back, back better. We would say to really have a great reset. Conspiracy, conspiracy. Conspiracy. Got it? So it's a conspiracy theory. The Great Reset and Build Back Better, that's a conspiracy theory. That is Klaus Schwab, that final voice you heard before the the CBS news person broke in. But uh, we had Bill Gates there. We had the legendary activist Greta Thunberg, blah, blah, blah. We had Tony Blair. We had Boris Johnson. We had Jacinda Ardern. And of course, we had all the American global communists there as well. But yeah, you know, I'm probably just a conspiracy theorist. That's probably not what they're doing. And those other countries around the world. Oh, yeah, I forgot about uh, Justin Trudeau, who's actually obviously Fidel Castro's son. And we've talked about that before. Believe what you like, but there is more than ample proof out there. But yeah, those other countries probably just heard Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan and thought, you know, we really need to build back better, too. Maybe we do need a reset of how things are going. And of course, I know, commies, I know it's a conspiracy theorist, no matter what, no matter how many times the leaders on your side say that it's happening and talk about how great it's going to be. No matter how many times that happens, it is still a conspiracy theory. They are baseless claims. There is no evidence that these people are working together in any way, even though we know Bill Gates is funding the media that supports this stuff. It's just impossible that all of these world leaders who you see at all the global summits could actually be talking and forming plans together. It's impossible. It's a conspiracy. The Build Back Better, well, that's just compassion made law. And if you're thinking, hey, I wonder what global communist Susan Rice, who is somehow now worth about $140 million dollars, could be thinking about the Build Back Better plan. Here you go. Complexities, but where we are is quite extraordinary. On Monday, the president signed into law a bipartisan infrastructure uh, piece of legislation that we have been waiting for years to be able to do. Said it couldn't be done. No way you can bring Democrats and Republicans together and make the kinds of absolutely necessary transformative investments in our rail in our roads, in our bridges, in our airports, in our broadband, in our clean water, things that we've been waiting for forever, and Joe Biden got it done. And now uh, we have an equally important and impactful uh, set of investments that will transform the lives of American families and make uh, you know, child care and pre-K available to everybody uh, in an affordable way. Enable first-time home, first-time, first-generation home buyers to have the support they need to have an affordable home. Enable those who are trying to afford college to have more support uh, to enable them to to pay for college. Uh, this is an extraordinary and important uh, piece of legislation. Together. They will enhance our competitiveness, enable us to tackle the climate crisis, which is so urgent and so critical. Um, And uh, I am confident that when all is said and done, uh, the president will be signing not just one, but two critical pieces of legislation. Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, Susan Rice, thank you very much for being on this morning. We appreciate it. So you got that? They have been waiting for years to get this done. It's odd that they were waiting to get something done that whole time under Donald Trump because 
you know, we're being told that this is Joe Biden's build back better plan. So he just came into the office of fake president in January of this year. What was the whole waiting thing about? Is this is she saying like they've had this plan for a long time and then Donald Trump being president made it impossible to implement this plan that they have created with other global communist leaders at the behest of the Davos crowd and people like Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab? Is that what she's saying? Because it sounds like that's exactly what she's saying. And the truth is that what I just said maps exactly onto reality. Why didn't they do that when Barack Obama was president? Oh, yeah. They had already thought that they had stolen the election for Hillary Clinton and all of that was going to get done during Hillary Clinton's presidency. But that didn't work. So instead, the plan actually got not only delayed, but made more difficult to accomplish, which is the best and only explanation for why the fake administration is going so hard after all of these communist policies to the point where they are making it blatantly obvious to the American public that that's exactly what's happening. But what do I know? I'm a conspiracy theorist. Now, there's a great piece I want to share with you from the Brownstone Institute. This is from Wednesday, November 17th, Totalitarianism and the Five Stages of Dehumanization. Hannah Arendt's seminal work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, makes for sobering reading in the world we see developing around us in the year 2021. Indeed, we find ourselves at an impasse of epic proportions where the essence of what it means to be human is at stake. The totalitarian attempt at global conquest and total domination has been the destructive way out of all impasses. Its victory may coincide with the destruction of humanity. Wherever it has ruled, it has begun to destroy the essence of man. And that is a quote from Arendt. Although it is hard to claim that, at least in the West, we find ourselves once again under the yoke of totalitarian regimes comparable to those we know so well from the 20th century, there is no doubt that we are faced with a global paradigm that brings forth steadily expanding totalitarian tendencies, and these need not even be planned intentionally or maliciously, though they are. As we will come to discuss later, the modern day drivers of such totalitarian tendencies are for the most part convinced with the support of the masses that they are doing the right thing because they claim to know what is best for people in a time of existential crisis. Totalitarianism is a political ideology that can easily spread in society without much of the population at first noticing it and before it is too late. In her book, Hannah Arendt meticulously describes the genesis of the totalitarian movements that ultimately grew into the totalitarian regimes of 20th century Europe and Asia and the unspeakable acts of genocide and crimes against humanity this ultimately resulted in. As Arendt would certainly warn us against, we should not be misled by the fact that we do not see in the West today any of the atrocities that were the hallmark of the totalitarian regimes of communism under Stalin or Mao and Nazism under Hitler. These events were all preceded by a gradually spreading mass ideology and subsequent state-imposed ideological campaigns and measures promoting apparently justifiable and, quote, scientifically proven control measures and actions aimed at permanent surveillance and ultimately a step-by-step exclusion of certain people from parts of society because they pose, quote, a risk to others or dared to think outside of what was considered acceptable thought. And again, I personally would argue that we do see those things already in the works. This stuff is already happening and history will view it as such, particularly the vaccine programs and the treatment of immigrants and the censorship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think this writer is actually being a little too cautious about calling all of this what it is. In his book, The Demon in Democracy, Totalitarian Temptations in Free Societies, the Polish lawyer and member of the European Parliament, uh, Rysard Legutko, 
leaves no doubt that there are worrying similarities between many of the dynamics in communist totalitarian regimes and modern day liberal democracies. When he observes communism and liberal democracy prove to be all unifying entities, compelling their followers how to think, what to do, how to evaluate events, what to dream and what language to use. But once again, I am totally way overboard to talk about communism all the time. Totally. I don't know what I'm talking about at all. And it's offensive and divisive. And I know, I know you can't believe that I called your friends communists, except for the fact that they are supporting communism and it's entirely and completely obvious, and it's not a conspiracy theory, and it's not ignorant, and there is broad intellectual support for exactly what I'm saying, and there always has been. Thank you very, very much. This is also the dynamics we see at work on many levels of globalized society today. Every reader, but especially politicians and journalists interested in human freedom, democracy, and the rule of law should carefully read chapter 11 on the totalitarian movement in Hannah Arendt's much acclaimed book. She explains how long before totalitarian regimes actually take power and establish complete control, their architects and enablers have already been patiently preparing society, not necessarily in a coordinated way or with that end goal in mind for the takeover. The totalitarian movement itself is driven by the aggressive and at times violent promotion of a certain dominant ideology through relentless propaganda, censorship and groupthink. It always includes major economic and financial interests. Such a process then results in an ever more omnipotent state assisted by a host of unaccountable groups international institutions and corporations that claims to have a patent on truth and language and on knowing what is good for its citizens and society as a whole. And yeah, we don't see that happening now. Not at all. I'm just a big fat jerk for offending everyone by calling people communists when they're only aiding and abetting the takeover of totalitarian communism. My apologies. Although there is, of course, a vast difference between communist totalitarian regimes of the 21st century that we see in China and North Korea and Western liberal democracies with their growing totalitarian tendencies, what seems to be the unifying element between the two systems today is thought control and behavioral management of its populations. This development has been greatly enhanced through what is coined by Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff as surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism, Zuboff writes, is a movement that aims to impose a new collective order based on total certainty. Did you hear that? A collective order. And once again, collectivist ideologies all end up at communism and genocide because they rise to power through division of groups, however they define them. It is also, and here she does not mince her words, an expropriation of critical human rights that is best understood as a coup from above, an overthrow of the people's sovereignty. And once again, what have I said a thousand times on this podcast? We are conditioned to look at communism from the bottom up as a people's movement, as a workers movement. It is not that. It is from the top down. The people are merely being played for fools with the help of the useful idiots in prominent cultural positions. And the people are being oppressed to the point where they actually beg for the communist state to save them. The modern state and its allies, whether communist, liberal or otherwise, have, for the above and other reasons, an insatiable desire to collect massive amounts of data on citizens and customers and to use this data extensively for control and influence. On the commercial side, we have all the aspects of tracking people's behavior and preferences online, brilliantly explained in the documentary The Social Dilemma confronting us with the reality that never before have a handful of tech designers had such control over the way billions of us think, act, and live our lives. 
At the same time, we see an operation, the social credit system rolled out by the Chinese Communist Party that uses big data and permanent CCTV live footage to manage people's behavior in public areas through a system of awards and punishments. Gosh, never talked about that before, have we? The mandatory QR code first introduced in China in 2020 and subsequently in liberal democratic states around the world in 2021 to keep permanent track of people's health status and as a prerequisite for participating in society is the latest and deeply troubling phenomenon of this same surveillance capitalism. Here, the dividing line between mere technocracy and totalitarianism becomes almost extinct under the guise of protecting public health. The currently attempted colonization of the human body by the state and its commercial partners claiming to have our best interests in mind is part of this troubling dynamic. Where did the progressive mantra, my body, my choice suddenly go? So what then is totalitarianism? It is a system of government, a totalitarian regime, or a system of increasing control otherwise implemented, a totalitarian movement presenting itself in different forms and at different levels of society that tolerates no individual freedom or independent thought and that ultimately seeks to totally subordinate and direct all aspects of the individual human life. In the words of Dreyer, totalitarianism is a state in which nothing can be permitted to exist that contradicts a society's ruling ideology. Sound familiar? In modern society, where we see this dynamic very much at work, the use of science and technology play a decisive role in enabling totalitarian tendencies to take hold in ways that 20th century ideologues could only have dreamed of. Furthermore, accompanying totalitarianism in whatever stage, institutionalized dehumanization occurs and is the process by which the whole or part of the population is subjected to policies and practices that consistently violate the dignity and fundamental rights of the human being and that may ultimately lead to exclusion and social or in the worst case physical extermination. In the following, we will look more closely at some of the basic tenets of the totalitarian movement as described by Hannah Arendt and how this enables the dynamics of institutionalized dehumanization that we observe today. In the conclusion, we will briefly look at what history and human experience can tell us about freeing society from the yoke of totalitarianism and its dehumanizing policies. The reader must understand that I am in no way comparing or equating the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century and their atrocities to what I see as the increasing totalitarian tendencies and resulting policies today. Instead, as is the role of a robust academic discourse, we will take a critical look at what we see happening in society today and analyze relevant historical and political phenomena that might instruct us on how we can deal better with the present course of events that, if not corrected, does not bode well for a future of freedom and the rule of law. Now, that's the introduction to this piece, okay? Like I said, it's a long read. This is from the Brownstone Institute. It appears in the info stream today at t.me slash I'm your moderator on Telegram. And again, I want to mention that despite how very well done this is, I believe this author is trying to choose his words carefully for fear of reprisal. This system is already ascendant throughout the world. This is not the time to pretend it isn't what it very clearly is. Now let's switch subjects and go to CNBC. This is Dan Mangan and Kevin Bruninger. Bruninger? Two Iranians charged with spreading election disinformation, threatening people to vote for Trump. <laughs> a federal grand jury in New York indicted two Iranian nationals on charges related to a cyber based disinformation effort to intimidate and influence U.S. voters in order to benefit the presidential reelection campaign of Donald Trump last year. You will vote for Trump on Election Day or we will come after you, said one threatening email sent to tens of thousands of Democratic voters, according to prosecutors. The emails purported to be sent from the Proud Boys, a far right extremist group in the United States that supported Trump during the election. And if you remember last year, this news was already out there. This is utterly preposterous and everyone knew it was fake right away. 
Sayed Mohammed Hossein Musa Kazemi, 24, and Sajad Kashian, 27, are charged in a five-count indictment with conspiracy to commit fraud against the United States, computer fraud, voter intimidation, and transmission of interstate threats. The Department of State's Rewards for Justice program on Thursday offered a reward of up to $10 million for information about the men who are not in custody. The two experienced Iran-based hackers worked for a cybersecurity company now known as Eminet Pasargad, which provided services to the Iranian government, the Department of Justice said. The Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control has imposed sanctions on that company, both defendants and four other Iranian nationals who comprise the company's leadership. The two men are accused of obtaining confidential voter information from at least one state's election website, getting data on more than 100,000 voters. The state was not identified. They are also accused of sending intimidating emails to voters and disseminating a video that contained disinformation about purported vulnerabilities in the election infrastructure, according to the Justice Department. Prosecutors said the duo also gained unauthorized access to a U.S. media company's computer network as part of their effort. That company was not identified. If not for successful FBI and victim company efforts to mitigate that intrusion, it would have provided the conspirators another vehicle to disseminate false claims after the election, the Department of Justice said. And that, of course, is Merrick Garland's Justice Department and the wholly corrupt FBI that has been covering up the fake steel dossier for five years and committing absolute heinous abdications of duty ever since and ultimately for a long time prior. So that is the FBI's cover up attempt at what this is. What this is at base is foreign interference in an American election. They announced this finding before the election last year. And by they, I mean John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence at the time. Now, Trump's executive order 13848 allows for truly extraordinary measures to be implemented in the instance of proven interference in an American election. And that is exactly what we have. And this story should be taken to understand that that executive order could have, should have, and may well have been implemented over a year ago. I would encourage you, if you have not done so before, to take the time and read that executive order, 13848. It will not take you more than 10 minutes to read, and you will be astounded about what the government is able to do to punish anyone involved in aiding and abetting in any way foreign interference in our elections, okay? And then think about all the stuff that was done by all the people to interfere in our election. And I'm looking first at Mark Zuckerberg because that executive order allows them to seize everything from all of them. And many of us have been anticipating that for a very long time. Now, as I've been recording, the jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse case has found Rittenhouse not guilty on all charges. So it looks like justice has prevailed for Kyle Rittenhouse today. And I look forward to him being paid hundreds of millions of dollars by the media companies who have tried to distort this issue for the American public. And I hope that police forces around the country and the National Guard are prepared to put down the rioting that will inevitably commence now from the Democrat Communist Party's militant domestic terrorists, Black Lives Matter Antifa. And finally, I want to move to something that I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about because there will be a time for all of this. But the Daily Mail reported over the weekend about what's happening with the Ghislaine Maxwell trial that is about to begin in full on November 29th. Ghislaine Maxwell set up powerful men with women they'd like, 
prosecutors in sex trafficking case plan to reveal emails that they claim show the socialite using her ability to provide access to women as a form of social currency. Prosecutors in Ghislaine Maxwell's sex trafficking case plan to reveal emails showing her setting up powerful men with women they would like. In a court filing, the lead attorney claims the messages show the 59-year-old British socialite using her ability to provide access to women as a form of social currency. Maxwell, the alleged madam for pedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein, was eager to please the men and wanted to ingratiate herself with them by making connections with women. The 84-page court document does not mention the men by name. New York prosecutors plan to offer several emails that show the defendant took steps to please other influential men other than Epstein by providing them access to women she selected for them. It claims these exhibits show the defendant's willingness to facilitate encounters between powerful men and women they would like and the defendant's understanding that providing such access is a way to ingratiate herself with powerful men. At trial, it may not be obvious to a jury that an adult woman would be willing to provide Jeffrey Epstein with access to young girls. These emails make clear that the defendant was willing to serve in such a role and that she was eager to please wealthy and influential men by providing them with access to women. Maxwell's lawyers said that if she was trying to ingratiate herself with a friend, so what? Their response document states, if her motive is to permit adult women to date her single friends, then it is not to pick up schoolgirls off the street to give sexual massages to Jeffrey Epstein. And if she already had access to other powerful and influential men who were in her life, she would not need her friendship or access to Jeffrey Epstein. The matter of the emails is set to be debated today at the final hearing before Maxwell's trial, the public phase of jury selection known as voir dire is set to begin in the Manhattan courtroom tomorrow. Opening statements are due on November 29th. Maxwell faces six counts, including enticement of minors, sex trafficking of children, and perjury. The daughter of disgraced tycoon Robert Maxwell denies all of the counts, which carry jail sentences of up to 80 years. She is being held in a six-foot-by-nine-foot cell at Brooklyn's bleak Metropolitan Detention Center and has set aside 5.2 million pounds to pay for her defense. And so at some point, we are going to find out the names of the men listed in this case. But there is a pretty broad understanding that Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew will be among these people. And so when that happens, we can anticipate a pretty widespread meltdown and probably quite a large number of false flag events, which, by the way, include real events that are being exploited to distract from other events in an attempt to cover up news that they don't want getting out to the public. I hope you all have a good weekend and I will be back Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. 
I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm Your Moderator. The Substack is I'mYourModerator.substack.com and the merch site is CancelCouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!